0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Andrew Sinclair, one of the principals of the Long Reach Energy Income Fund. We're talking to him about the fund today, what it seeks to do in providing ongoing income of around 5 to 8% and a total return of 20% by investing in real assets, the ownership of land and the gas in the ground in Texas and Oklahoma. Please remember that this podcast isn't nor is it designed to be specific advice and people are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and seek their own advice. Please do remember To keep your feedback coming, suggestions on who we should be talking to, who are the leading minds in wealth management, are greatly received. To that end, you can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the episode. Andrew Sinclair, welcome to Inside the Road. Dave, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Andrew, it would be great if you could give us a bit of, and our listeners more importantly, a bit of a summary as to who they're talking to.
1: Yep. Uh, I am a really oil and gas specialist investor, so um, U.S. energy is what I do. Uh, I started my career sort of way back at Macquarie, uh, as a lot of people in financial services in Australia tend to do. Uh, In 2002, I moved to Houston in Texas, which is the sort of the heart of probably really the global oil and gas business, and uh, we built a business that put Macquarie's balance sheet into upstream oil and gas, uh, and I've been doing it ever since. My partner in in sort of the investment side of of the Longreach Energy Investment Fund uh, is a reservoir engineer, which is the technical discipline that sort of works out what's under the ground and what cash is going to come out of that. And uh, we've been working together since 2004. We uh, left Macquarie together in 2011 to start our business, which is giant capital management. And then, um, you know, we've been sort of running money. We started as an investment of advisory business, and then we've been we've been running proprietary capital since two thousand eighteen.
0: And just give us a bit of a background prior to uh, uh, Macquarie Bank. What, what what's your background, and a little bit of colour, if you can, about yourself?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I actually, did a uh, mechanical engineering degree at Sydney, um, mm-hmm. and had a job at Macquarie. In fact, before I'd sat my last exams, so. Um, uh, you know, went straight went straight into one of the the training programs at Macquarie and, and had a terrific 17 years there. Um, you know, enjoy sort of all the things that you would expect from yeah an Australian male of our generation. You know, enjoy my rugby and cricket and golf and tennis and have family and uh, spend a lot of time you know, living in different parts of the world and, and traveling the world as as you would expect with you know, an expertise in in oil and gas. The one thing I've I've never whilst I, you know I'm clearly Australian, I've never done a deal in Australia. Uh, Australia is it's just for my market, it's just it's it doesn't exist. And you're based in Houston now, is that correct? Uh no, between Sydney and Sydney and our office our principal offices are Houston and Tulsa. So yes. I'm I'm on a plane across the Pacific a lot.
0: Okay. Rightio. And how do your sporting endeavours and uh, supporting teams, do you support them on this side or or that side? You know,
1: I've never been able to get into American sport. It's just – it's so broken up. It's – you know, it always really annoyed me. You'd be watching a basketball game and then the damn thing had stopped. you think, what the hell's the game stopped for? And they've cut to an ad. And it says the only game that I think has its natural rhythm is baseball. And they have, I don't know, 350 games a season. So Mm -hmm. I can only get interested in that when – It feels like the game matters, which is only right the final. So, no, my my sport is all very much centred in Australia. Okay. And tell me, what were the
0: main learnings or things that you took away from your time at Macquarie Bank?
1: Look, I think Macquarie um, does several things really well. I suppose the most important is that money is invested in things that you deeply understand. I remember when <clears throat> the financial crisis hit and all these people had bought these CLOs and CDOs and all these sort of amalgamated bonds of things that um, they didn't really know what was underneath them. And, and you know, the biggest lesson is if you invest in something, deeply understand what is the underlying risk, right? What are you, what are you getting exposure to, which could be different from what you're seeking exposure to. So make sure you understand what is that. And that, and that, still sort of resonates today. You know, that is, that is critical to everything we do, a deep understanding of what is it you are really buying. So
0: in the current fund that we're here to talk about mm-hmm.
1: today... Maybe you want to give the
0: listeners a bit of an introduction to that, the the name of it, what it does, how long it's been around for, what its performance has been.
1: So the Longreach Energy uh, Income Fund um, has been around for, I think, about 18 months. Um, So it is the second vehicle uh, under the Longreach brand. The the first is a um, private um, mandate for a large uh, pension fund or superannuation fund. Um, And uh, we've been running that First vehicle since 2018. This second vehicle um, is really now the opportunity to offer that investment product to a, to a wider market. It is really an investor in U.S. energy, um, which is mostly nat gas. So there's a little bit of oil exposure, but it's predominantly predominantly natural gas, and it is a real asset owner. So we don't invest in companies. We don't invest in you know listed private companies. We invest in assets. So it is a real asset owner. So it owns producing land in Oklahoma and Texas principally. Um, we own mineral interests. So in the US, the US is unique globally in resources because if you own a hundred acres onto the surface, you don't just own that hundred acres on the surface, you own it all the way to the core of the earth. So in Australia and everywhere else in the world, if you want to go and dig something out of the ground or, or drill, it doesn't matter what it is, you have to go to the government for a license because if you're a farmer, you only own the top metre and a half, everything below that is owned by the government. In the US, that is owned by private individuals. So you have a deep real estate market, really, that 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 is centred on reserves and resources underneath the ground. That, in our case, is gas and oil. But could be you know, gold, um, gold, you know, any, any sort of metal. In fact, dinosaurs have been shown to be part of the mineral estate. So, um, and it is unique, right? And, and out of that unique land ownership comes a very dynamic, large market that um, is difficult, frankly, for you know, people outside the US to understand because the resources business there operates so differently um, certainly in the oil and gas space than it does anywhere else in the world.
0: So is that why this strategy, I think in some of your material, you refer to it only being viable in the US? Yep. Is it that dynamic? It is. It and, is. and how does that dynamic work in Australia? You talked about, you know, you've got, a lot, got to go along to the government and buy that land. And I know, I think it's Norway where they found their oil reserves in the 70s or 80s mm-hmm. and actually created a sovereign wealth fund yep. out of it that they're all enjoying. How's that worked in Australia? People, you know, uh, you know, the generations before Reinhardt's went out there and staked out some land and said to the government, we want to
1: buy this, and then they own the resources to that? Yeah. Look, I think the, mi- the mining business in Australia, um, that scale yeah, operates reasonably well. I think um, what happens is if you want to go and, yeah, Beedaloo Basin, right, which is in the Northern Territory, which, is, which has been a, a subject of, of sort of some discussion It's in the press a lot at the moment. Use that as an example. So it's an area that has potential. Okay. So there's there's hydrocarbon. There's likely gas in the ground. The question is, how do you get it out? You mm-hmm. know, and because ours is a ours is a manufacturing business, right? it's cash. All I care about is cash in, cash out. Um, and so you know that has to like you have to be able to put a dollar in and get three, four, five, six dollars out. And if you can't do that, then it doesn't make sense. So in the Australian context, you go. Beeloo Basin, some geologist thinks, okay, there's some gas there. So they go to the government and they say, I want a license to try and develop this. And the government says, all right, we'll give you a license. Here's a couple of hundred thousand acres or a couple of million acres, it might be, you know, a large area and you get a concession and then you try and develop that concession. In the US, you know, you might own one acre or, or 10 acres. And so you have to go around to all these individual companies. And it means that, if you look at that similar area, so let's say the Beedaloo Basin, I'm making up numbers. Let's say let's mm-hmm. say it's a, a, a thousand square kilometres, right? If you took the equivalent asset in the US, that thousand square kilometres would have probably you know three, four, five thousand different owners, rather than in Australia it's one owner. So you've just got a lot more opportunity for company to to come and have a go, right? And and that's so unconventional, which is really tight rock. So just about everything we do. You put a hole 10,000 feet down, go 10,000 feet across, which is over a mile down, mile across, and then run a completion in it, which is a frack, you know, 56-stage frack job, which you're putting water and sand into the well and you, you're breaking open the tight rock and allowing the gas and the oil to flow in and to produce. That is a... Um, yeah, you know, mechanically intensive operation. So you've got a lot of service providers. You've got, you know, a lot of people who need to cooperate. And there's also a lot of science in, you know, where do you put the hole? How do you run that completion? It's an extraordinarily complex operation that's now done, you know, every day and, and done with enormous precision every day. But to get from where it started to today has required an enormous amount of experimentation people trying new things, people exploring, lots of people failing, right? As with any advance, lots of people have to fail before they, before they get it going. And so the US has allowed that dynamism and has allowed people to have a go, to fail, to explore, to take risk. In Australia, you've got one or two companies trying to develop, you know, a similar thing, their opportunity to just try things, right? They drill one well, it's a big deal. With us, like if you haven't, don't have two, three, four thousand wells in a basin, you have no idea what's there, and there are millions of wells drilled everywhere we drill, so we know a lot more. So we're starting with a much higher knowledge base. We're starting with a deep service infrastructure. So any piece of work we need, there are at least ten people bidding for that work. Um, I was talking to one of the guys. So there's a one of the big drilling global drilling contractors, H and P and they were looking at doing some work for santos right they were they were pitching for some work for santos in new south wales and he told me just among the logistical problems were their rigs are not allowed to move on new south wales roads right so if they bring rigs out here that it is illegal for them to move from one site to another i mean it's just it's it's administratively and operationally impossible to try and replicate <clears throat> what you can get in the us and so i'm i'm enormously cynical about the ability to develop unconventional reserves anywhere else in the world. There's there's some great rock in Australia. There's some great rock in Argentina. You know, Russia obviously has heaps. And there are lots of places where, in theory, you could get it because it's the same geology, but trying to make money out of it, which is what our business is, we try and produce a commodity that the world needs and to make money doing it, right? If I'm not making money, my investors are unhappy. So it becomes a really economic exercise of cash in, cash out. And I just think if you measure it on cash, making that work anywhere else in the world is incredibly difficult. Andrew, can you tell us about how you go
0: about making money specifically and maybe give us an example of how that works and maybe if you could reference if there's any exploration risk in there?
1: Yep. So the first, I might just touch on the exploration thing. So I I mentioned before we are a manufacturing business. So I think most Australians, if you think oil and gas, and if you think investing in oil and gas, you either think little companies having a wild swing at a massive target with a ten percent penny dreadfuls, exactly, Uh, or you know a massive company, you know a a Woodside or a BHP or Santos or or the international majors. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, There is a vast. You're looking at basically two ends. Of a continuum, we play in the middle of the continuum. Which, which, and one of the reasons why I've never done a deal in Australia is where we play doesn't really exist in Australia. Um, so, what is most important in investing, I think, probably any resources. I mean, oil and gas is is my specialty, but but I think this is probably true of anything. And another lesson going back to Macquarie is deeply understand what it is you're investing in, and um, in, in integral in that is. Uh, the technical team that we have. So my my partner and giant, Thomas Wagenhoffer, is a a reservoir engineer. Uh, He has a technical team underneath him with geologists, geophysicists, production engineering, operations engineering, all the relevant um, disciplines that allow us to have Full life cycle. So if we drill a well, that will be producing for you know, thirty or forty years, often. So we have full life cycle cash flows for everything we do. Um, you know, within the broader portfolio, uh, I think the income fund today has about three hundred producing wells. Uh, I think if you look at, at all our vehicles, we're probably up to three and a half, four thousand producing wells. We have individual cash flows for every one of those wells. When we look at a new deal, it's really, what is the cash, right? I don't care about production metrics, really. I don't care about reserve metrics. What I care is, alright, if I put a dollar in, how much money am I going to get out over what period of time? And that is a function of prices. It's a function of operating costs. It's a function of capital costs. And it's a function of rate of production. So how much hydrocarbon is going to come out of the ground over what period?
0: So you talk about the first thing that's a function there is price and anyone who's invested in resources and commodities, the first thing they think about is, well, gee, it's very hard to pick commodity cycles and prices. And of course, this calendar year, what we've seen in the Ukraine and Russia, we've seen a huge spike and a huge focus on energy security and the gas price, I think I want to say is doubled. Um, is this a strategy that is predicated and relies
1: upon that sort of doubling to produce great returns? Um, no is a short answer, but but look, this is a cyclical industry, right? So there are times when you wanna be taking money off the table and going to work on your golf game or your tennis game or you know read a good book, right? There are absolutely times, and if, and, and I've been in the business for 20 years now, and there've probably been two or three times in that cycle where taking money off the table is sensible. Um, Today, however, you know, is a time to fill your boots. Yes, it's come a lot, right? It's it's recovered a lot, but um, our business is really about economics of drilling good wells, you know, and that is a margin business. So that when when revenues go up, so too do to costs, you know. So we're drilling wells now that cost probably you know a, a well that we're drilling now that costs ten million dollars to drill and complete. Um, in 2020, 2021, we we're probably able to do that for five and a half to six million dollars. Mm-hmm. So, so explosion you, in costs. Exactly. So you get, so you get as prices go up, you get margin compression. So, so costs go up with revenues, and when prices decline, you get margin preservation. That is, costs fall. So, it's it's really a margin business. But the other thing is, yeah. You know, we are very early in this cycle, right? The the world, as anyone who's sort of paid any attention to, to Europe in the in the last sort of you know, six months or so knows, um, you know, the world is massively reliant upon oil and gas, and whether you like it or not, that's just a the reality. And there are yeah, you know, hundreds of millions of people who are desperately short of energy, um, and the only way that those people can receive energy really, um, is by traditional uh, fossil fuels. Um, we don't want them to be using coal. <clears throat> I mean, plenty are, I and mean, coal is absolutely booming. But, you know, the best thing to use is, is nat gas. And so we have, a, we have a structural long-term view that natural gas is going to become increasingly important. Um, and, you know, the sector has been underinvested. So there is less money going in, there is less development and particularly if you take Russia out, I mean, Russia is now demonstrated as an unreliable supply of energy, which is probably over the medium term, I think for Russia, the most sort of catastrophic thing that, that Putin's action of delivered, because all through Soviet Union, right, the one thing that they always did reliably was supply Europe with power. So particularly Germany, but but right across Europe, everyone sort of separated out geopolitical risk from The supply of energy, right? That was mutually beneficial. The Europeans needed it. The Russians or the Soviets needed the money. So it all worked and everything else. So
0: would it be a bad thing for your fund if Putin wasn't around overnight and everybody made up with Russia and the supply came straight back on?
1: Uh, It's very marginal, right? Very marginal. So um, the US historically in particular, I'll focus on that gas here, US historically has been a domestic-only market, right? There hasn't been... there has been a couple of pipes running to Mexico, a couple of pipes running to Canada, but for the most part, gas was produced and consumed domestically. And so the driver of price volatility has been weather, right? So if it's cold in winter, mm-hmm. people burn gas for heating. If it's hot in summer, they use gas to power the marginal electricity to drive their air conditioners. So you see a peak in winter, lower peak in summer... Trough in you know autumn and spring when the weather's nice. That that has been the main sort of marginal driver. What we've seen since 2016 is the growth of the LNG industry, where today, you know, depending on the week, um, the US fires with Australia and Qatar as the largest LNG exporter in the world. There are more facilities being built in the US, certainly than Australia and than Qatar. So the US is currently at maximum capacity in able to export about 14 billion cubic feet of gas a day. That's going up to 22 to 25 BCF of gas a day, Just then, that's over the next five years just with the facilities that have already been approved. That's off a base of about 96 BCF a day of production. So you've got somewhere around 16, 17% today able to be exported, going up to 25 to 30%. Um, so that is a new market, right? And And what that new market does is... Allow Henry Hub, which is the U.S. domestic gas price marker, to be more integrated with the rest of the world. So historically, Henry Hub doesn't care what the price of gas is anywhere else. Well, because the gas, like it's an isolated market. It can't can't move. It's like the historically the Australian domestic gas price. You know, the gas. It is a function of local supply and demand because they're the only factors that can drive price. So too with the US. But now you're getting the US being more and more integrated with the rest of the world. That is providing additional support. Um, and that is in the context of, I think, today, and there have been massive peaks, but today, gas in Europe is trading at about $50 an MZET versus US spot contracted closed last night at $6.97. So, you know, seven, let's call it $7. So gas in the US is $7. I don't know what it is in Australia. I think it's actually 20 or 30 in Australia. Um, In Asia, it's 30 odd dollars. So basically anyone who has to buy gas on a market is paying more than the Americans are. So for, for the US, you know, there are markets. Yeah, there are lots of markets, but it's mostly domestic. So coming back to your question, what happens with Russia? Well, the big, like, even if Putin was overthrown tomorrow, yeah I think the Europeans have learned a lesson which is we can't rely on Russia for all our supply so so structurally there is always going to be yeah you know, they're going to want to have the capacity to buy US gas. Now, whether they do from period to period doesn't really matter because it's there and it's available. Um, and it is a global business. And we're, we're talking about a world where I think there are 433 million people in Africa with no electricity. Mm-hmm. right? It, it, Australia doesn't matter. I mean, the reality is all these people talk about Australia needs to cut its emissions. The reality is that doesn't matter at all. Um, and it's not really relevant to my business as a global energy supplier.
0: So let's talk about that elephant in the room being the emissions and Mm -hmm. the decarbonisation of the grid and people wanting to phase out fossil fuels and companies left, right and centre are committing to this and governments are committing to this. Um, How does that play into your strategy or your thinking?
1: Uh, I think that's that's integral with our long-term belief in that gas um, because natural gas is the cleanest of the fossil fuels.
0: So there's a transition from coal Absolutely. to gas to renewables.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think the last step, I think um, certainly coal to gas, I think the last step, people need energy, right? And, and mm-hmm. it's all very well talking about the context when, you know, I can – I want to be good, and I want to do the right thing, and I want to use less power, and we need to move all to renewables. As soon as your energy bills triple, I think France and Germany they're up by a factor of twelve times in the last twelve months, right? Australia is like twice. So Australia energy prices haven't done anything here, um, you know. And and there's a lot of just basic services that require the energy. So uh, I, I think there is, yeah. You know, there is going to be demand for the commodities that we produce in 100, 150 years. Now, it'll be less, but I don't need the global oil and gas industry to be bigger. right? I, don't, I actually don't care how, you know, how much oil comes out of Nigeria or all, all these other places. right? All I care about is, can I, can I profitably extract a marginal unit of my commodity? Um, and it is, it is, as anyone who just looks at the basic supply and demand numbers, will acknowledge, you know, essential that reliable natural gas is available for the world. Um, And Andrew,
0: how would you, if you buy into this thesis and this gas position in the US, why wouldn't you just buy the Santos of the US or similar? Why why is your strategy... More focused or uh, a better strategy, for lack of a better word.
1: So it comes down to listed versus private, really. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and there are, look, there are some excellent, excellent companies in in the US. I think history shows that um, listed companies um, have two main differences from us. The first is yeah, share price volatility, right? So driven by sentiment. So um, yeah, there are a whole lot of other external factors that cause your price to go up. So so yeah, you know, listed markets give you a give you a sort of exposure that private markets don't and and you know, if you look at all the commentary about you know super funds here at the moment and mm-hmm. um, you know private private capital um, you know as a part of a portfolio adds you know important diversification. So that's point 1. Point 2 is um, whilst Wall Street and listed companies have have sort of tried to learn that lesson, um, there have been perverse incentives. So if you look in the last 10 to 15 years, listed companies have been incentivised and encouraged to grow production, grow reserve life, and grow absolute reserves. None of those three directly relate to cash, right? So they've been... so. When times are good, they've been encouraged to and measured on the basis of, you know, what's your production day today versus your production yesterday? What are your reserves today versus your reserves yesterday? And growth has been good and growth has been rewarded. And if those numbers are going down, then you're bad. Now, the problem with that is they don't measure cash, right? If you're interested in cash in, cash out, you don't necessarily care whether your production goes up or down period to period because it's a function of dollars in and dollars out now investors in the US have sort of been been um, stung by that and the recent sort of let's call it the mini boom right the recovery in, in prices and revenues you know investors have been saying we'll be having that money back thanks we don't we don't trust you to invest we don't trust you to to you know grow and deploy capital you know these are good times and we want them so we'll have that cash and what that has done is basically restrained the response that the market has historically had to high prices. So historically, if you have a peak in prices within six months, you see a direct correlation with activity. So that is more wells coming online, you know, more wells being drilled. And we're absolutely seeing that, but it's been really restrained from the big companies as they're being more disciplined. Now that, frankly, for our business is a good thing. It means that the good times will last longer because there's an old phrase in resources that the cure for high prices is high prices, right? So as prices are high, everyone drills more, produces more, prices go down. Equally, cure for low prices is low prices because no one does anything, prices recover. So that underlying supply and demand. But I think, look, there are some great companies. and, And, you know, if you're looking for US energy, Exposure, you know, listed energy exposure. Yeah, there are, there are some good things to do, but ours is more focused on delivering cash and, and income, and long term capital gains. Um, cyclically, yeah, more cyclically resistant. Well,
0: talk to us about how people looking at this fund and analysing it should think about how they you'd expect the returns to turn up. You you, you talked about income. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about what sort of income you'd expect it to produce, how often, and at what level. And at what sort of total return expectation? Yeah, so, the,
1: so the, tar- the target is to be delivering five to eight percent income, which will be paid quarterly. Uh, your total return should be yeah, comfortably over twenty percent IR, with the de- delta between the income and the total return being capital gains and, and capital gains from from drilling good wells and and generating sort of capital value appreciation from yeah basically increasing reserves and production over time from good technical work, all coming down to to solid technical work. Um, and there is a period I mean as as with anything, when money comes in it needs to be deployed so there's a bit of a time lag as you as you start but uh, we've been we've been absolutely delighted with the performance over the last couple of months and and yeah we are we are yeah really really happy with with how it's going and and see a very bright future ahead. I mean I, as I say you know this is a macrocyclical business, but where we stand in the world there's at least 10 years of, of really happy times ahead for us.
0: And you talked earlier about, <clears throat> Texas and Oklahoma is where you own mm-hmm. your wells. Mm-hmm. And I think I may have read something that Oklahoma has a unique ownership
1: structure. Um, yeah, well, actually, it's the same. I mean, it's, it's basically the same. The, the thing about Oklahoma is um, in Texas, the land goes back to... The, it actually goes back to the Spanish land grants in the 1600s, so try track title to. Um, the thing about Oklahoma which makes it there, there are a couple of unique things. Firstly, Oklahoma became a, was formerly sort of Indian territories and became uh, a state in there was, was a specific day in like the 1890s. Um, and so all title goes back to that day, right? Mm-hmm. Well there are. so if you, if you set it up and the whole state in Oklahoma is set up in a grid system. Which is true of a lot of the US, but a lot Texas is a bit muddled. There's bits of Texas that have nice uniform grids and bits that don't. Um, but the whole state has got a square mile grids and each section and there's automatic unitization in, in Oklahoma, which means that if you own one acre, so every six hundred and forty acres, which is a square mile, is one section. If you own one acre in that section, you get one on six hundred and forty of anything that that happens in that section. So the world doesn't have to be drilled next to you. You get you share in that. Um, and so that makes the, the land situation a bit easier. And land is something we haven't really talked about, which is sort of the whole real estate side. But um, there are there are barriers to entry. As with any business, there are barriers to entry here. And one of the big barriers to entry is having good land people. You know, these land records are kept in little county courthouses in these books, and you have to go and pull these books and work out like what is the chain of title, right? So if I want to go and buy some minerals off you... I'm going to, well, do you really own them? So I need to send a broker out who understands that thing and you can get a degree in being a landman. Um, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a rabbit warren, so I won't go down it here, but but just think about you know, Warren Buffett's sort of moats. You know, why the moats? Why doesn't everyone do this? There are some moats in this business. And and in your strategy,
0: um, you talked <laughs> about the separation of the mineral rights below mm-hmm. the earth and yep. on top. Do you own both of those? Land titles, or you typically only own the mineral. No, rights, we're only we're
1: only interested in the minerals. So, so we a lot of the minerals we buy is off the surface owner, but a lot of the time, it's all that separation has already happened in the past, um, and so you know we are only interested in the in the underground. And the other important thing, particularly you know in the Australian context, is the mineral estate. So the ownership of underneath has primacy. So the surface estate owner, if they're separate, they can't stop you or prevent you from. Access, because I own I own privately these assets, and I can't be deprived of access to the assets. So. And h-
0: how do you access it? Is there a point on the top that you're allowed yeah, to yeah, yeah. use so, to access I mean, it's it? it it's, extens-
1: you- it's extensively regulated, as you might expect. So, you, you, the process you, you basically you stake a location, you talk to the surface owner. You need to get you can't you can't force them to, to let you have access. But we 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 have. Um, yeah, we work very hard, to have really good relationships with the local communities. I mean, the, the communities in which we we work, you know, the oil and gas business is their lifeblood, and they've had it for a lifetime. And and you know, just about everyone has royalties, and just about everyone, you know, is has direct connections with these industries. So it's deeply embedded in the in the communities in which we work. So um, the point is, you can't like had someone the will to prevent access, they can't do it. But yeah. It, um, and that's not, that's not true everywhere in the U S but it's certainly true where we operate.
0: And I think you're managing around 760 million at the moment.
1: Uh, yeah. Round, round numbers. Australian I think, I think uh, Aussie, oh, yeah. yes. I think with the Aussie going down and the assets going up, that number's going up pretty fast. But, yes. uh, but I think that, that was, that was roughly true as of March. And is the strategy,
0: uh, exposed to the U S dollar or is there, it hedged?
1: It, no, it is exposed to U S dollar. So, um, you know, our world is the US dollar world and we looked at it when we set it up and it just the, the hedging was was too complicated so uh, certainly people who are looking at taking larger exposures you know if, you, if you're worried about that. US exposure you know you can you can go out and I'm sure you know, you guys and and, and others can, can offer mm-hmm. product uh, personally I mean I tend to be pretty long the US dollar that's that, that seems to work pretty well as an Australian investor right there are a lot of things that when Australia is doing well um, you know, the Aussie is moving up when Australia is not doing so well, the Aussie is going down. But so, you know, I think that certainly yeah, in my experience for the last 20, 30 years of my professional life, yeah, being long the US dollar is not a bad place to be for a good part of your portfolio.
0: And while you're in the mood on those sort of for- forecasts, where do you see the
1: US gas spot price going into the future? Uh, Look, I would be delighted, I think the forward curve um, goes out to like it's four, within two years, it's down to about $4.30. Um, I think, I won't say forever, but certainly in the next 10 years, you know, I would be surprised if we saw spot prices below sort of four bucks and, and for the most part, probably seven plus. Um, you know, I think as, as we roll forward in time, what happens is you know, the, the forward curve is backwardated. So um, what you see is, is the price is increasing as we get closer to delivery. I just think that supply and demand, I mean, just look at the numbers, right? The world needs a supply and, and um, it's too hard to deliver at, at you know, prices under $4. But I will say we were drilling wells in eastern Oklahoma when gas was $1.20 and we have done absolutely fantastically out of those. So you know, low prices are not a disaster.
0: Okay. And, and how has performance been? I, you, know, you, you preface that there's a large uh, superannuation fund in there as a cornerstone investor. H- how has their performance been and how's the performance of the income fund that we're talking about as well? Uh, we
1: are comfortably exceeding, yeah. We, we sort of say 5% five, five to 8% yield and 20% return. We're, we're doing comfortably better than that.
0: Very good. Well, Andrew, I think that's been a, a fantastic uh, summary. Um, before we end up, I'd love it if you could take us through a scenario where it works really well and a scenario where it doesn't work well or it goes badly. Yep. Just take it so, so so lenders can sort of think about what they're aiming for,
1: or sorry, potential
0: investors are, are aiming
1: for. Um, you. It's as with as with probably a lot of stuff. It's about what you pay, right? Mm-hmm. So so working well is what you pay. Um, historically, we've tended to be right more often than not, on the reserves, on the technical side. So where we've had bad surprises, it's really been you end up paying too much. So good result. Um, we, and this is a large deal, but a good example. So we bought um, within the, the, the the pension fund portfolio. We bought uh, a large-ish asset. Um, we spent 110 million US dollars buying um, mix of operated and non-operated properties in Oklahoma, all, all natural gas. And these were old Newfield, which is you now I think it's, it's a Vintiv now, but you know, a listed, big listed US company and they decided in 2020 to get rid of their gas in that area. So um, they'd sold to a little Oklahoma company, and we b- we bought it 12 months later from that Oklahoma company. Uh, within like, almost instantly, because prices started to go up, and, and that that 110 was basically the value of current production. They, they The company we bought it from had no ability to develop, so they couldn't drill any wells. They had neither the expertise nor the capital to do that, so they bought it for production value and, and production value increased based on prices only. We bought it, um, prices kept going up, but then we found, you know, as we started to dig into it, and we knew this before we bought it, it was why we bought it, just the, the development potential there. So we have hundreds of wells to be drilled. Um, you know, that asset today, you know, we probably wouldn't take less than probably $600, $700 million for that today. And that was an acquisition in December. Um, now, it's not it's not worth that necessarily if you were to sell it in the market today, but certainly to us being able to develop it, we can see, and that, that asset will turn up, that'll, that'll end up being worth over a billion dollars, because of its development potential. So that's a great result, right? So that, that's something that's worked. Um, something that, that doesn't work tends to be, um, actually there was a little, little deal we did, um, you know, drilling, I think it was three wells in, uh, Northern Oklahoma, um, First, well, came in okay, but they had some cost overruns. Um, you know, the reserves, there's always a range, right? There's a probability range of low to high. Um, you know, and we often say that a failure case for us is you make five or ten percent. You know, success case, you make two, three hundred percent, failure case five or ten. And this one, this this one again, the reserves weren't great, spent a bit too much money, um, you know, production was at the lower end of the range, we'll end up making, you know, five or ten percent return on it. Um, so that that's, that's, that's how we like to have our spread. Uh, so what I'm hearing there is
0: that the technical expertise behind the decision-making is really important. To that degree, do you want to talk? You, you mentioned it before, your partner mm-hmm. um, in the business and fellow principal in the business, yep. about his expertise and how he's regarded in the market and the team below him.
1: Yep. So uh, reservoir engineering, so petroleum engineering is... Uh, the discipline sort of sits on top of the valuation the end work product is a cash flow right it says which is a function of all those things we talked about before but really it's saying you know this is this is what you need to spend to put a well in the ground and then these are this is the production you'll get out of it so basically a daily production forecast um that, you know, Thomas has been doing that his whole career. So he is, he's actually an Austrian national. I'm not quite sure how this happened, but anyway, as a 16 year old, he wanted to get in the oil business, right? He grew up in this little beautiful ski town in Austria or oh, went to, went to the Vienna mining school when he finished university. But Austria doesn't have any oil and gas. And mm. so he, uh, he thought, okay, where has oil and gas? And, and, uh, looked at, well, it's Alaska or Texas. So applied to um, to University of Texas and the University of Alaska to do you know, undergraduate petroleum engineering and mm-hmm. um, University of Alaska said you can start now, basically, and University of Texas said, well, we've got a spot for you in six months. He said, well, I want to start now. So he went to Alaska as an undergrad, then did uh, postgraduate petroleum engineering at um, UT, so the University of Texas in in Austin, Uh, then went to work for ARCO, which is Atlantic Richfield, which is one of the many um, descendants of the old standard oil Mm-hmm. uh, that had a, a fabulous, actually their international business was amazing. And, and the number of Arco technical people you run into is incredible. Um, but, uh, he had a few years there then BP bought Arco and at that point he left to work for Ryder Scott, which is like a KPMG of the oil and gas evaluations business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then had been working with Ryder Scott for a number of years when we snaffled him at Macquarie back in 2004. So he has a team and, 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 yeah, you know, expertise, you talk about you know, what are the limitations on this industry. The reality is people is a massive one, right? So um, when I started in this industry, I was sort of one of the youngest people around. And frighteningly, I still am. That's one of the reasons I like it. You know, it's one of the few areas in your life where you can stay young. Uh, I'm still 20 years younger than most other people who are, who are knocking around. Um, and that that supply of people and particularly supply of people with, with expertise. Um, the other thing I'll say about Thomas is that when we started, like most most engineers, I'm mean, in theory I'm an engineer, although my wife would dispute it. Um, mm. you know, as soon as you get to a bank, I'm a banker now, right? Um, Thomas is probably one of the only ones who actually got to a bank and said, "No, I still want to be an engineer." So that's one of the reason one of the reasons our partnerships work really well. I mean, I think it's hard when you start something, right? To do it on your own must be incredibly difficult. And when you find a partnership, and Thomas and I worked this out quite early, when you find a partnership that works really well. Um, you know, that's worth treasuring and adds value. And, and, you know, he and I talk several times a day, despite the fact that we live on different sides of the world and and, we spent many, many years sitting next to each other, which sort of helps, but uh, we have very complementary skills. We understand enough of what each other does Um, but, uh, we, we, you know, without even talking about stuff, we know automatically whose, whose area of responsibility it is. Um, And that technical team, and it's amazing to me how many people invest in, in oil and gas, and this may happen in other resources as well. I'm not sure, but yeah, serious investors in oil and gas don't have their own technical people, right? They rely on someone else to tell them what it's really worth. And that's never made any sense to me. Again, coming back on those lessons from Macquarie.
0: Terrific. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Pleasure, Dave.
1: Thanks, all. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.